all the time. First of all, you should all give yourselves a hand for so many of you being here when it's four below zero outside. Thank you. You know, you know, for me, it's kind of a challenge sometimes. Church is a priority. And when we make that a priority, we find a way. When I was recently out of seminary, I pastored a church in Sumner, Illinois, and a country church called Beulah. And if you wanted to see all of the folks that hardly ever came to church, you waited for terrible weather. Because when the weather was bad enough, they were going to prove that they could get to church. We actually had great attendance when the weather was bad. Today we're going to talk about the awesomeness of God. Three or four years ago, uh, my grandson Eli. Eli's a baseball player, and when you're a baseball player, you're just going to have ups and downs. That's all there is to it. And he was having a down. And I decided he needed some time with Papa, because deep in my heart, I think it cures everything. And so we sat down, and, and I looked at Eli, and I said, hey, bud, how's it going? He said, ah, oh, not real good. I said, well, don't be discouraged. Because when I was your age, a lot of people thought I'd never grow up to be awesome. And I said, you know, the years went on, had some ups and downs, but look at me today. I'm completely awesome in every way, and you have that kind of hope as well. He looked at me, he said, Papa, that's the worst pep talk in the history of the world. <laughs> We're in Jerusalem. Third decade of the first century. Jesus of Nazareth had been crucified, resurrected, and ascended. Pentecost had arrived. Holy Spirit, fire had rained down on the only 120 Christians in the world. The disciples were supernaturally empowered with unimaginable gifts. Peter preached under the influence of the Holy Spirit and 3,000 people came to the church that day. In a very literal sense, the early church was carrying on the ministry of Christ, fully empowered, carrying on the ministry of Christ. The censoring text we're using for this, the Acts 8 series, offers a snapshot of, of a growing, effective, unified, and empowered church. Nothing in all the Bible floods my imagination, fills my heart like the spirit-filled church depicted in Acts 2. In the early days when we started growing, in 1996, this church averaged 210 people a week. And by the time we got into the early 2000s, we, we were growing pretty good. And people would ask me, they, they would say, what kind of church do you guys want to be? And what they meant was, what famous church out there do you guys aspire to be like? There were these marquee churches around the country, and it was sort of like, you know, what kind of church do you want to be? And I always used to tell them, I want to be like the church in Acts 2. I want to be like that church. The early church was formed around four practices and eight characteristics. Verse 42, they, the 3,000, joined with the other believers, the 120, and devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And fellowship, sharing in communion, and prayer. These were the four practices of the early church. Let's, let's just talk about them a second. A spirit-filled church. First of all, they gathered themselves around the apostles' teaching. It's going to be a teaching church. 
We want to offer you multiple layered opportunities to get into the word. We want to offer you that. So one thing we're doing this year, as we do every year, is we're all reading the Bible through together. Now, we're reading just the New Testament. It's, it's the least ambitious thing we've done in, over the years. But my hope is that you'll slow down just a little bit. Because we're only reading about a chapter a day. We're, we're doing a prayer. So about six days a week, you read one chapter. You can listen to it on a Bible app on the way to work if that works better for you. We've got the reading schedule out at the Sync Center. You can jump on our online group. But the big idea is we want to get people in the Word. We want to get you into the world. Word, I want a biblically literate congregation here. Also, on Wednesday nights, we go verse by verse through entire books of the Bible. We're wrapping up Colossians right now. We'll be jumping into the Gospel of Mark when I get that done. We go slow, we take our time, we look around, and we walk those trails together. This is exactly what the early church was doing. On Sunday mornings, I don't get up here and give you a Garrison Keeler monologue and staple a scripture on. I, I, I preach from the word of God. There is something substantive in that. So a characteristic of the spirit-filled church is that people want to be taught the Bible. They want to get in the Bible. Number two, fellowship. Now my dad has the best definition for fellowship in the history of the world. A bunch of fellows in the same ship. Fellowship. The early Christians wanted to be together. That's why I love it when people come early and grab some coffee and some breakfast at the cafe. I, I love it when people stay late and just visit and talk. Sometimes we have trouble getting the scripture hall clear because we've got people who are just staying and visit. Guys, that's actually quite biblical. Fellowship. Wanting to be a part of each other's lives. Sharing in each other's victories. Helping ease each other's burdens. Doing life together. That's what the early church did. And that's a part of what we do. Sharing in communion. Communion had two senses. But they were both holy. One is what we think of as communion. And the other thing was that they ate these love feasts in the early church. And basically it was just having people, Christian people, over to your house and having a time set apart for talk about God and the goodness of God. You know, those of you that host Bible studies, like in your home, uh, this would be in that tradition. Uh, it's not just fellowship, it's having some holiness around get-togethers. Taking communion, yes, but also realizing that when we break bread with each other in Christian community, it's a different kind of communion. And then the final one is, is just prayer. You show me a church that doesn't want to pray, and I'll show you a church that is not as rooted as it needs to be. I can't tell you how much I appreciate I don't know if you're aware of this, but we've got a group of people that show up here every Sunday morning before 7 o'clock, and they just pray over this entire facility. At 7 o'clock, they lay hands. Yeah, praise God for them. At 7 o'clock, they lay hands on everybody who's going to be on the stage. They, they just pray over this place. You see, I think prayer plants dynamite and the proclamation of the word explodes it. You can't explode. You can't detonate something that's never been planted. So prayer is a characteristic. It's, it's a 
peace, a practice of the early church. Now, with those four practices in place, we go to verse 42 following. Because now he's going to give us eight characteristics. And we're going to call this the Acts 8 for this series. So, there's eight characteristics. We're going to explore one of them each week for the next eight weeks. So, let me just go over the eight with you real quick. Number one, wonder. Verse 43, awe came over them all. Number two. Miracles. The apostles performed many signs and wonders. A, a characteristic of the early church is miracles. God doing things that would be impossible in any other way. Number three, fellowship. We've talked about that, but it says the believers met together constantly. They wanted to be together. Christians are sticky by nature. We, the Jesus in us gravitates toward the Jesus in others. That's why I think it's so important that we get back to fellowship, whether it be meeting somebody before or after church and grabbing a cup of coffee and a Danish here just to spend some time together, maybe going somewhere to eat lunch after church gets over or brunch or however that works out. But just this fellowship component is so important in the early church. Number four, generosity. They sold their possessions and shared the proceeds with those in need. Number five, worship. They worship together. When? Each day. Each day. I just find that incredibly compelling. One of the things I, I do with social media is, uh, with Facebook particularly, is that I've got a personal account that, you know, if you want to see pictures of my grandkids. But I've got a professional account as well, Reverend Shane L. Bishop. And one of the things I try to do on those two platforms is just daily speak into the lives of people. Just every day. Give people something. Why? Because they worship together daily. Number six, communion. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper. They shared in meals with what? Great joy and generosity. They had generous spirits. They just had generous spirits. Number seven, a good reputation and enjoyed the goodwill of the people. Now, people would say, you know, I'm not sure I get everything those Christians are doing, but they sure are good folks. And then number eight, growth. And each day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Today, we're going to explore that first characteristic of wonder. Melissa and I celebrated our 40th anniversary this year. One of the things we've done in recent years is that every morning at 6 o'clock, except Sundays because I have to get up earlier, every morning at 6 o'clock we have coffee together. So here's how my day goes. At 6 o'clock my alarm goes off and I get up. I used to not know how to do that. In fact, I used to think it was impossible because I was not a morning person. And I had convinced myself. And I convinced myself there's no way I could ever be a morning, morning person. And then I figured out how to do it. Your alarm goes off and you just drag your carcass out of bed. That's it. That's all there is to it. And so every morning my alarm goes off and I got to take our dogs out. Because if you don't take the dogs outside, they go inside. So you got to take the dogs out. So out they go. While I'm doing that, Melissa makes coffee. And pull the dogs back in. I get a big thing of coffee and a huge thing of water. 
every morning we go down into our downstairs area and we just spend 45 minutes together. Over the years, we will talk about God. I mean, you, you talk about all kinds of stuff, but sometimes we talk about God. And ever since I met Melissa, every time we talk about God, she cries. Every time. The more she talks about God, the more emotional she gets. And finally, she just can't hold it in anymore. I can tell you, I've never met somebody just so in love with Jesus. Even over coffee, that love that she has for her Savior is palpable. Over the years, I, I never quite got it. You guys know what I'm talking about? I mean, I love Jesus, but I, I didn't, what, whatever it is that was happening with her didn't happen with me. But I always thought, that's so awesome. So I want to talk about wonder today. A huge part of my faith journey over the past decade has been to recover the wide-eyed wonder that I had for Jesus when I was a little boy. How many of you were raised in church? Anybody old and raised in the Bible school era? Yeah, the old B-I-B-L-A. I just started remembering me when I was eight, nine, ten years old in Bible school. It was awesome. It was awesome. First of all, you got treats, and that didn't happen much in those days. And second of all, you sang the greatest songs in the whole world. Uh, politically and crack songs now, like I'm in the Lord's Army, loving it. And we would sing all these beautiful, wonderful songs. And I just remembered me singing. Buddy, the Lord never had a more committed soldier than me at eight years old. I'll tell you that. And then life goes on and ministry goes on. And in some ways you get a little calloused. You get a little jaded. Sometimes you start thinking the worst and not the best. And after a while you just... Find that, that childlike love that you had for Jesus somehow isn't what it used to be. I've spent the last several years just recovering this unchated faith that I had when I was a little boy. I've spent the last few years just leaning in, leaning in. So let's lean in today. Let's take a look at Psalm chapter 8. And if you don't mind me going all King James on you, uh, let's just kind of do a deep dive. First of all, the passage is written by King David. King David watched sheep over the hills in Bethlehem. David would have penned the sheep at night. He would have watched the sun go down. And then he would watch the day give way to night. And then he would have seen spectacular stars. I can imagine that on clear nights, he just took his breath away. It was in these hills that David met with God. He didn't just meet God. He met with God. It was here that he penned songs of worship that have become the Psalms. It is here that David grew small 
And God grew large. And as David viewed God's rhythms and nuances and artistry, songs, songs of worship and praise exploded from his spirit. The songs are all written to the God of wonders. Verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, the majesty of your name fills the earth. Your glory is higher than the heavens. The earth is made beautiful by the name of God. It is filled with his glory. What makes the world beautiful? It's not the mountains and it's not the beaches. It's not the sunrises and it's not the sunsets. What makes the world beautiful is the name of God. All those other things are simple reflections of his name. Wow. Wow. Verse 2, you've taught children and infants to tell of your strength, silencing your enemies and those who... Oppose you. When I talk about a childlike faith, I'm not talking about childish faith. I'm not talking about an uninformed faith. I'm talking about approaching God with the capacity to get lost in the awesomeness and the wonder of God. You ever notice you have to teach kids to be good? They seem to have being bad down already, right? But you don't have to keep, teach kids to praise. They do that naturally. They do it naturally. They just naturally praise God. That's what I wanted to get back. That's what I wanted to get back. Before I started overthinking everything. Before I had all these hurts and disappointments. Before so many things didn't work out the way I wanted them to. That's what I wanted to get back to. That childlike faith. Verse 3, when I look at the night sky and see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you've set in place, you gave them charge of everything you made, putting all things under their authority. You ever just been blown away by a night sky? I was sitting outside. Uh, I've got a hot tub in the back of my cabin that I bought for Melissa, and she doesn't like it, so it worked great. And... Uh, and so I got this hot tub, and, and I go out there at night. And I go out there when things are, are just as quiet as the wood gets, and, and I'll just slide in. And sometimes I get out there at that time of night where the, the day's sort of giving way, and the night sky becomes brighter and brighter and brighter. And one night, there's just a hole in the woods over the hot tub. And, and, and I was just blown away by the majesty of God. And then I thought to myself, I bet it was just like this with King David. And then I thought, eh, maybe not exactly like this with King David. But my spirit just soared. Just soared. Pagans would look at the heavens and declare that each star was a god. But David, he doesn't go there. He doesn't look at the sky and says, these stars are gods or all of this creation is a God. That's not what David was doing. David says, when I look at the night sky, it's just a glimpse of God's creation, a taste of God's cooking, a glance at God's art, a whiff of God's cologne, a splattering of God's glory. For David, nature itself was a call to worship. It was an invitation to get swept up in the glory of God. 
The art is not the artist, but the art does tell us something about the artist. So what happens when we get swept up in the glory of God? How, how do you know when you're getting somewhere? Number one, we are humbled. Verse four, what are mere mortals that you should think about them? Human beings that you should care about them. The first thing that's going to happen when you truly understand how big God is, you start realizing how small you are. And we bow down. We bow down. I've got no use for arrogant Christians because they have no idea how huge their God is. We bow down. Number two, we are exalted. Yet you've made them only a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You see, it's only when we bow down that God lifts us up. Humble thyself in the sight of the Lord and then he will lift you up. So we bow down in humility. We are exalted and lifted up. And then number three, we are empowered. Verse six says, you have given us authority over all things. So I just want to say to you, church, you have been given authority over all things. Take thou authority in the name of Jesus Christ. You want to know what this means to me? That humans are called to make it happen, not let it happen. People of God are called to be above and not beneath. Initiators, not reactors. The head and not the tail. The arrow and not the target. We've got to stop letting Satan push us around, jam us up, and shut us up, and shutting us down. We must stop beating ourselves up. We need to stop letting people treat us like doormats, and we need to take thou authority over our lives in the name of Jesus Christ. We are empowered, and we, start, we need to start living like empowered people. What a ridiculous notion that someone who is empowered lives defeated. When you asked Jesus into your life, you were empowered. When the Holy Spirit got a hold of you, you are empowered. You are a spirit-filled, empowered Christian. Stop living like a defeated person. So, he, he starts doing all this, right? He just gets fired up. It fires me up. I just get fired up. I always think, I'm just going to stop on a corner and preach a while. Verse 9, oh Lord, our Lord, your majestic name fills the earth. I bow down, you lift me up, you empower me, and your name fills the earth. Anybody starting to get it? This guy named Carl Boberg that got it. And like David, he tended to write his songs down. Listen to what he wrote. Oh, Lord, my God, when I am awesome, wonder. Consider all the works thy hands have made. I see the stars. I hear the rolling thunder. Thy power throughout the universe displayed. And then sings my soul, my Savior, God to thee. How great thou art. How great Thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior, God to thee. How great thou art. How great thou art. We used to sing that, and I never could hit the last note. You know, it kind of, how great 
Thou art. I just didn't have it. What there, man? And I always thought that was the brilliance of old Carl's song. We're singing about the greatness of God. It ends with a note that no human can hit. <laughs> Loving it. Loving it. I can't hit that note. But man, I could sing the song. After conducting hundreds of funerals over the years, something unexpected started happening last year. Something broke loose in me. I don't know if it was because Melissa's cancer journey has changed me. I don't know if it is because of that personal revival I've been telling you about of recapturing that childlike faith. And frankly, I don't know if it's just that I'm getting older. But more and more, I find myself overwhelmed by the majesty of this incredible Christian faith that we celebrate. I'll be in funerals, and I'm just sitting there thinking about what God's done and what he's made possible. And I'm overwhelmed. Fourteen years ago, a young mother passed away in this church as a result of cancer. She left a husband and two young daughters. It hurt. It hurt. I was writing her service, and these words just sprang up from my spirit. It had to be something like how words just sprang up from King David when he sat on those Bethlehem hills. And I, and I wrote these words down, and, and I've used them ever since. And I've shared them with others over and over and over again. And pastors have said, what is that thing? And I've just put it out everywhere. I see these words that I wrote today online with some regularity and no attribution to me whatsoever. Yes, my friends, I have become public domain. I'm going to read them exactly as I read them. Standing right here on March 1st, 2013. For a friend by the name of Liz. At the bedrock of our Christian faith lies a single story. Jesus was crucified, dead, and placed in a tomb. And it seemed as if evil had triumphed over good, death over life, and despair over hope. And then Friday passed. And then Saturday passed. But on the third day, on the third day, Christ arose. Today we gather with heavy hearts and willing spirits to help Doug and the girls go forward in any way we can. And we do so with a faith that though it bend, it will not break. And we stand together with the saints in an act of holy defiance. Death does not get the final word. And though a body lies before us, a soul no longer ravaged by disease dances before the Father singing songs of Zion. That is our story. And it's in celebration of that story that we gather on this day to celebrate life and life eternal. To stand in the face of death 
and to proclaim the victory of the Lord over death is powerful. And Christians do it every time we celebrate the life of a Jesus follower. And as I get older, I find it overwhelming me. What God has made possible for sinners like you and like me. When I was a young pastor, uh, I didn't really grow up in, in a formal tradition. We, I, I grew up the, the child of Jesus people. And so if you've read the Jesus Revolution, let me tell you, that looks a whole lot more like my upbringing than the services that you see that are high church. But when I became pastor of the first Methodist church that I ever led, they sang a song every single Sunday. It was familiar to me, but not that you would sing it every Sunday. I was in a church called St. James. They had a choir, about 14 of them behind me. There were about 14 people in front of me. My church had about 28 people. I was kind of a preacher sandwich. I was just right in the middle of two equal groups of people. And and I remember the first Sunday they took up the offering and they brought it forward. I'd never been through one of their services. And all of a sudden they started singing. And uh, I don't know that I got it then. I might have told you back then that that was some kind of relic of the past that we'd probably do just as well to move from. But uh, I didn't get it back then. But that was then. You probably know this song. And they sang it without accompaniment in that church. Sing it with me if you know it. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Still have coffee with Melissa every morning but Sunday at 6 o'clock. But these days when we talk about God... There's two of us crying. I didn't get it then. But I get it now. My prayer for you in 2024 is that if you don't get it, that in this year, you will. When you truly begin to understand how great God is, you begin to understand how small your problems are. When you truly understand how great God is, you find that this Christian faith isn't just something that we chuck a box off of every week. But this Christian faith is the most wonderful thing imaginable. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, 
but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Would you pray with me? Great and mighty God, give us eyes to see your wonder. Give us the faith of an eight-year-old in Bible school. Remove from us the things that have calloused our hearts. All the overthinking. All the things that we don't understand. The hurt and the disappointment we've all experienced. Dear God, remove everything from us that jades us. Open our eyes. Trim the calluses off of our hearts that we might fall in love with Jesus all over again. That we might ask you with David to restore the joy of our salvation. Dear God, that's my prayer for your people in 2024. And I thank you because I know that's a prayer you want to answer. And perhaps you're answering it even now in Jesus' strong name. Amen. In a minute, we're going to worship. I just invite you to lift up your hearts to God. Tell him how wonderful he is. Get lost in his vastness. One other song. Close to mine as I close. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. And the lyric goes on, and the things of earth will go strangely dim. Almighty God, may your glory illuminate our hearts. Altars open if you'd like to pray. Maybe just tell God how awesome he is. Let's stand and worship together.